Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University, and I'm delighted to welcome you to another webcast done by the Rudd Center. Today's guest is John Cowley, associate professor at Cornell University. John received an undergraduate degree from Harvard and a PhD in economics from the University of Chicago and is one of the few economists who is devoting full-time attention to nutrition and obesity issues. And in that context, has done tremendously interesting work across a variety of topics. He's currently the associate professor, as I mentioned, in the Department of Policy Analysis and Management at Cornell, and he works on health economics, particularly the economics of obesity. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me, Kelly. I'm glad to have you here. I'd like to begin the discussion by uh, talking about a presentation that you made on the way the government deals with dietary supplements and the claims they make about weight loss. Can you talk uh, just a bit about the way the government regulates or fails to regulate these type of products and what kind of products we're talking about here? Yeah, sure. So the, the category of products are called dietary supplements. And this is basically anything you take to supplement your diet that might contain a vitamin, a mineral, or an herb. So this category includes everything from the multivitamin you take in the morning to uh, St. John's wort that's sold at the cash register of the pharmacy. Uh, but what we're really focusing in on are the subset of these dietary supplements that claim to promote weight loss. And these dietary supplements are regulated, or as you alluded to, not regulated, uh, according to the Dietary Supplements Health Education Act of 1994, DSHEA. And basically, DSHEA says that uh, a dietary supplement is regulated like a food. So it doesn't have to prove that it's efficacious at doing anything, and there's n no requirement for manufacturers to do any kind of safety testing before they put these things in the market. So literally, you and I could sit down today and brainstorm and come up with uh, a dietary supplement that we're going to claim helps people lose weight, and we can put it on the market uh, without any FDA approval, uh, without conducting any, sa any tests to make sure that it's safe or that it does what we're claiming it does. Um, and so this uh, act of 1994 has really had enormous implications for advertising of dietary supplements. So well, that was an issue that got fought out very specifically about whether these would be considered food or drug. Wasn't that right? And that had enormous implications for how well they're regulated. Oh, I mean, enormous. Uh, right. So a drug is under the purview of the Food and Drug Administration, has to go through all sorts of clinical trials to establish both safety and efficacy. Foods are not regulated uh, in that same way at all. And so what we've been doing in this project, and by we I mean my colleague Rosemary Avery, and with a, a tremendously talented and hardworking student, uh, Matt Eisenberg, uh, is we're studying the advertising for weight loss products that are sold over the counter. And uh, what we're finding is, is that uh, these ads are heavily concentrated in uh, certain women's sort of fashion lifestyle magazines, so Cosmopolitan and Glamour. And we're also analyzing these advertisements for deceptive statements. And that might sound like a really tough call, like how do you determine whether a statement is deceptive? But the Federal Trade Commission's made it really easy for us to do this because they put together a document for magazine publishers to use to screen out deceptive ads. And so they give you seven specific, what they call red flag statements that are by their nature definitely false. So claims that you can lose 
substantial amounts of weight without diet or exercise, right? So that just violates the laws of physics. That's not true. If you see an ad that claims to do that, it's deceptive and you shouldn't run it as a magazine editor. And so we coded 877 ads that ran in a wide variety of consumer magazines between 1985 and 2005. And uh, we really do find that, that deceptive statements are rampant in the advertisements for these products. So, um, you know, more than 40% of all the ads uh, contain at least one deceptive statement. Um, and moreover, we find that exposure to deceptive statements increases the probability that people use these products. And you might wonder, well, why is that a bad thing? It's a bad thing because historically these types of products have had very severe side effects. Uh, typically, uh, cardiac uh, arrhythmia, heart attack, stroke. And the reason is, is that the active ingredients in many of these products um, accelerate the heart rate. And um, frequently the active ingredients are combined with caffeine so that after you take one, you feel like your heart is racing. You believe that maybe your metabolism has sped up and that you're burning fat but all that you've really done is put yourself at risk for a heart attack. And so it's, it's actually a very disturbing thing, uh, public policy-wise, public health-wise, that a lack, of inf a lack of regulation is allowing manufacturers to put these potentially dangerous products on the market and then to say an awful lot about them that isn't true. Um, now, you attract the, um, how many of these deceptive statements there were before and after the FTC stepped mm -hmm. in and specifically asked the magazines not to run ads that had these seven deceptive statements. What did you find? Right. And thanks for uh, bringing that up. So the Federal Trade Commission, I think, is one of the good guys here. So the Federal Trade Commission put together this guide for the magazine publishers to use to screen out deceptive ads. And the head of the FTC went to the magazine publishers of America and asked them to do the right thing and not run these ads. Um, now, they were not empowered by Congress with any kind of enforcement power. They did not have the ability to penalize magazines that did not comply. But they sort of, as Teddy Roosevelt would say, used the government as a bully pulpit to try and effect positive change. Um, now, what we find is when we look uh, at 2001 and 2002, which is before the 2003 Federal Trade Commission initiative, we compare that 0102 period to uh, 0405, is we find a really kind of interesting story that it really seems like the glass is half full and half empty. So the glass is half full because um, the probability that any of these seven red flag deceptive statements occur in an ad dropped dramatically after the FTC initiative. So that's great good news. And it's in a way, it's almost surprising, too, given that they had no enforcement power. I mean, the publishers could have just ignored this, and they wouldn't have ended up uh, going to trial for it. Um, but on the other hand, at this, over the same time period, the number of ads uh, that were being just run tripled. So even though the odds that any given ad had a deceptive statement fell by 50%, because the number of ads tripled, consumers' exposure to these deceptive statements actually went up. So it doesn't say much for the voluntary actions of the, the magazines for curtailing these sort of things, does it? Well, uh, the, FD, the FTC tried. That's right. Went to the magazines and said, would you make these voluntary changes? But it appears that the picture is worse rather than better, so it's obviously not working. Yeah, but I guess I would be more cautious and say that on an individual ad basis, you could say that it worked because the odds that any one ad has a deceptive statement did fall by 50%. It's just that the number of overall ads tripled. Okay. So like I said, I think the FTC is a good guy here, uh, but this is a problematic market for a variety of reasons. Uh, it's problematic because the DeShia law of 1994 allows products to go to market with no proof that they work and no proof of safety 
and these are products that historically have had potentially fatal side effects. And then there's a problem of deceptive advertising and that the FTC has not been empowered to maybe enforce these things as, as closely as they should be. And, and you might wonder, well, why does it matter? You know, why does it matter if, you know, s people are blowing smoke about how good their product is? Um, well, it matters. So I'm an economist. And as an economist, advertising is a way to get people information about products, to help them make decisions. And when people are being given deceptive information about products, it causes problems in markets because people don't know for certain the qualities of the products. They depend on ads to tell them some information. And so the problem is, is that an, a firm that advertises honestly is likely to go out of business if people believe these deceptive statements. And even if people learn to adjust their expectations and say, well, I, sh I should really reduce every claim by 50%, the more honest firms still are at a disadvantage. So this is called the lemons problem in economics, where the bad quality products or the deceptively advertised ones drive the good ones or the honestly advertised ones out of the market. It also is a misallocation of $2 billion of consumer spending. Um, and, you know, another risk is, is that people take these products, they don't work, and then they just get discouraged at any attempts at weight loss. And... Right. One thing I think consumers are surprised about is how powerful that supplement industry is and how organized they are. They think it's some fly-by-night company that sells things out of the garage. And in fact, that, that's who some of the players are. But collectively, that industry is so powerful. It's, it's probably why the DeShia law got passed in the first place. And these things are considered foods rather than drugs. And it's why the FTC doesn't have regulatory authority over this. And they have to basically go pleading the magazine editors to try to regulate this sort of stuff. But the products go on and on and on. It's a sad state. Yeah, I think a, a really interesting story related to that is when um, ephedra w was a, an active ingredient in over-the-counter weight loss products up until uh, the early 2000s. And that had to be taken off the market for causing potentially fatal side effects like heart attacks, stroke, and so on. And so the FDA tried to take it off the market in November of 2000. And the manufacturers of these products were successful in uh, court in overturning that ruling. And as an economist, I find this, the logic of the ruling to be, you know, uh, difficult to understand. But, but here it is. Uh, the, the, the court ruled that when the Food and Drug Administration uh, wanted to take ephedra off the market, that it was making a cost-benefit analysis. In other words, it was saying that the, the risks of ephedra are so great that they exceed any benefit that consumers could derive from taking it. And as an economist, that's very appealing to me. You make a cost-benefit analysis to determine almost anything. Uh, it's official government policy to use cost-benefit analysis to determine you know, what policies to implement, for example. Uh, but the court said that it couldn't be used in this case because the DeShia law, we're back to the limitations of the DeShia law, uh, the DeShia law says that uh, a, a producer of a dietary supplement, like a weight loss product that's sold over the counter, doesn't need to ever show efficacy to put it on the market. And so implicitly using a cost-benefit analysis to decide whether a dietary supplement could be on the market was requiring them to have efficacy, to have a benefit. And so on the basis of that logic and the basis of the law we have in DeShia, ephedra was not taken off the market as soon as it could have been. And it took until, it took several years uh, for this to get straightened out in the courts before it was with certainty that Federer was taken off the market. So when you're talking about the manufacturers being powerful, I mean, this is an example of where a potentially lethal active ingredient is, uh, you know, not being taken off the market soon enough. Um, and, you know, 
partly because of, I think, some bad lawmaking. Well, I'm delighted you're working on this topic because it's so important, and there's so much abuse of consumers, I think, in this category that this kind of work you're doing, I think, is very, very important. I'd like to shift gears now and ask you about some of the, because you do so many interesting things. I'd like to talk about some of the others. Um, You mentioned that you'd written a paper on the Farm Bill and how the Farm Bill might influence public health through its effect on food buying behavior and food consumption practices and things. When most people hear the word Farm Bill, they probably think, well, it's, you know, planning and helping farmers plant their peas or something, but it actually has a lot of different components, and it's a massive piece of legislation. Could you mention a few of these impacts that that things that are happening through the Farm Bill might have on human food consumption? Sure, and I should add that this is work that I'm doing jointly with Barrett Kerwan at the University of Maryland, who's uh, an outstanding agricultural economist, and it's only by working with him that uh, I'm able to understand the complexity of the Farm Bill. I mean, it's that... uh, the various policies all wrapped up in this are so complicated that uh, it really did take Barrett's expertise in agricultural economics to help me understand it. Give us an example or two of things that are in the Farm Bill that might be relevant. Sure. So there's, you know, there's some things that uh, actually raise the price of food to consumers. So a great example is the sugar quota. Um, So uh, sugar can be produced much more cheaply outside the U.S. than within. But to protect and to benefit a small number of sugar farmers in the U.S., sugar beet farmers, sugar cane farmers, um, we restrict importation of, uh, of sugar. And so that actually raises the cost to consumers of sweets. But it resulted in an unintended consequence, a distortion, in that because sugar is so expensive that manufacturers have switched to using high fructose corn syrup to, um, to sweeten their products. And... Um, and that links to another part of the farm bill, namely the subsidies. Can you talk a little bit about exactly. that? Exactly. Uh, well, so it used to be that um, how farmers benefit through the farm bill has really changed over time. Uh, and currently, farmers are just given really direct payments, and they're also insured against uh, price falls. And so as a result, it's argued that there's really a lot more production of some basic commodities than there would be otherwise, which leads to lower prices, which arguably leads to higher consumption. And these sort of really, um, the distortions in our agricultural sector are so great and enormous, and we've never had a perfectly free market in agriculture in sort of living memory, that it's, it's really complicated to be able to say with certainty how, at the bottom line, this either promotes or deters against obesity. Uh, but we're really trying to do that by sort of specifying each of these different planks of the farm bill. For example, um, another, another sort of interesting example uh, of agricultural policy having an unintended consequence is that historically we would um, subsidize the production of certain energy-dense foods, so like cheese, for example, pork. And then uh, there would be the question of, well, how do, you, uh, how do you dispose of this extra quantity that's been produced without driving down the price? And so the solution that they hit upon was to have what are called uh, checkoff programs. So every manufacturer in this category would have to contribute money to a pot, and that pot would be used to advertise new uses for the item. So in other words, if we're shifting out supply, we have to shift out demand too, or otherwise price is going to fall and that's going to work against what we're trying to do here, which is get more money to farmers. And so, for example, the cheese checkoff board has used its money to help Pizza Hut to to produce what's called the the insider pizza, which uses over a pound of cheese per pizza. Uh, This money from the pork checkoff program was used to help McDonald's develop the McRib sandwich. And so what's happening is is that government policy 
to aid farmers is having the unintended consequence of subsidizing the production and innovation in the fast food industry, which may be contributing to obesity. So just sort of, sort of some sort of, I think, very interesting ways. And again, these are unintended consequences. The government doesn't want to make people fat. Farmers don't want to make people fat. But because the Senate, in the Senate, you know, every state gets two representatives, so the relatively depopulated farm states have, you know, representation in the Senate way beyond their population. We have a setup where the agricultural lobby is very, very successful. And what they want to do is get resources to farmers. Thank you. And uh, so we're doing that very effectively, but perhaps with unintended consequences. Well, thank you for the description of the Farm Bill. Most people hearing the word Farm Bill wouldn't think it had so many influences on nutrition and nutrition policy, but it really does. Let's turn to another topic. Uh, you're doing some work on price elasticities and the effect of those on food intake. Um, a lot of people probably aren't familiar with the term elasticities and what that means. Could you explain that and talk about why it's so important to have that information available? Sure. And elasticity is uh, describing what's the percent change in how much people consume in response to a given percent change in price. So, for example, um, if there was a price elasticity of demand for candy of negative two, then that would mean that for every 100% increase in the price of candy, uh, people's consumption of candy would fall by 200%. And so this information is really important to know because if we want to um, change people's diets using the price system, and for example, one reason we might think that that's a good idea is because um, there are externalities associated with obesity. So there's uh, when someone is obese, they impose greater costs on taxpayers through Medicare and through Medicaid. Um, and so there's a role potentially for government to step in and try and prevent some of those externalities from occurring. So one frequently proposed policy is to manipulate prices, to subsidize fruits and vegetables, and to tax maybe high-fat foods, for example. So the reason elasticities are so important is because they describe how consumers would respond to a tax or to a subsidy. And so what we need to know is, um, if we raise taxes on candy, for example, how much would, for example, children's consumption of candy decrease? And it can be tricky, right? It's, it's, it's not intuitive. I mean, you'd think like, well, maybe kids don't really appreciate prices or budgets, and maybe they're just always going to buy the same amount, no matter how much it costs. Um, and what's really interesting is work by Simone French in Minnesota and other people have found that kids, even children, actually do respond to prices. That you know, if you change the prices of uh, you know, energy-dense foods and more healthy foods, the kids actually do change their eating behaviors. And measuring by how much people's eating behaviors change in response to subsidies and taxes is a really critical public policy question right now. And I think it's probably not too far from the current time when these will be very much in the forefront of public policy thinking. At one point, the at one point in history, when people talked about food taxes, the the, the reaction was swift and very negative and pretty much universal. But now, more and more people are thinking about that or changing subsidies, like you said, in order to harness economic policy in order to improve the American diet or improve the diet else, elsewhere as well. So that means we're going to have to know these sort of things. So you could spend a lot of time and effort, for example, putting a tax on something like soft drinks and pushing up their price. But if that doesn't really affect consumption very much, then why bother? Yeah. But there You'll might... raise some more money, but you won't affect behavior. Right. Yeah. And there might be other things where a much smaller tax or a much smaller subsidy, uh, which would be acceptable to the public, could have an appreciable impact on consumption. And then you'd really want to work in that arena. Mm -hmm. Something that surprised me is... Um, at Cornell, they conduct something called the Empire State Poll, and it's, an, it's a poll that's representative of the state of New York. 
And so I added some questions to the poll on people's um, support for various anti-obesity policies. And so all of the policies in question focused on the same core uh, sort of target foods, so basically soda pop and candy. I asked people, would you support a policy to, to get these like soda pop and candies out of schools? Would you, be, would you support a ban on advertising to children for these products? And would you support higher taxes on these products? And people were overwhelmingly in favor, New York State residents, a clear majority, you know, were in favor of getting them out of schools. Um, about half were in favor of uh, banning advertising to kids for these products, but the vast majority were opposed to higher taxes. And New York State is a high-tax state, uh, but it really just shows how even when you're focusing on the exact same products, you know, what policy you pick can be you know, critical to whether it flies or not, to whether policymakers are willing to go for it, whether the public supports it. Also, how the policy is framed. I was involved in another poll where people were asked pretty much the same question, would they support taxes on foods? But it was coupled with an earmark. So people were asked, if you would you support a, a small tax on soft drinks or other foods if the revenue were earmarked for nutrition programs for children? And the percentage of people embracing the policy goes way up if you do something like that. Now, of course, that creates all sorts of problems about whether the money that came in would actually get used for that purpose because there's the tobacco experience. But it's interesting how, um, how the policy um, – how the support for policies can change a lot depending on how they're framed. Absolutely. I mean, it makes me think of the uh, Clinton health care plan and how it got framed by the Harry and Louise ads and became a non-starter, you know, very quickly. So the, the other question is, who does the framing? That's right? very true. You know, people, when you think about something like taxing foods, which seems like a pretty radical proposal, is it worth considering doing? On one hand, people don't like taxes, and they don't really like government intruding into what they eat. So on that, on the one hand, it's pretty unpopular. On the other hand, you look at some public health victories like tobacco, where my understanding is that the single most effective thing that was done to curb tobacco use in the U.S. were the high taxes on cigarettes. Then at least you have to consider these as part of the, the armamentarium of things you might do to try to deal with the obesity problem. Yeah, we're at this really interesting stage where there's tremendous public interest, policymakers want to do something, but the scientific literature hasn't caught up to tell us what works and what works best. So there's a whole field of um, you know, economics and policy analysis called cost-effectiveness analysis. And the, and the whole point of cost-effectiveness analysis is to figure out which, which programs give you the biggest bang for the buck. So if America was going to spend $100 million on obesity reduction, you know, what are the projects that give us the most societal good from that $100 million? And that's, that's ultimately, I think, what all of us are working towards is towards that library of information that tells everybody, schools, workplaces, states, the federal government, what works best, and then, in addition, what works at all and what doesn't work at all. And um, that's, and, and unfortunately, that library is only starting to be built. And the challenge is, what do we do when we don't know what works? And I know I've talked to people who are concerned about... Um, I think the term we used previously when we were talking privately is you said there's a, sh a certain shelf life for every public health issue, right? So so smoking was the big public health issue of the late 90s. Maybe maybe obesity is the big public health issue now. So is this our only opportunity to have policymakers' attention to pass something? So the thing that worries me is what if we rush ahead with something that ends up not working and then we don't have any credibility later. 
Now, ha happily, we do know some things that work, and some of the cost-effectiveness research that's been done is, is really great. Like, there was a recent study of the program CATCH, which is a school-based anti-obesity program, and that's very cost-effective. Uh, Planet Health is another thing that's cost-effective. Um, and so in the ideal world, we'd know the cost-effectiveness of everything. Um, and so this is, this is actually a, a stage where I get a little nervous because, for example, states, like 22 states have raised their PE requirements. And in some work I've done with Chad Meyerhofer and David Newhouse, we found that these increased state PE requirements do make kids more active, but they don't have any impact on their weight. And so um, the point is, is that the average PE curriculum might just not be very good. And if raising PE requirements alone without thinking about what's going on in the PE class may not be very effective. And so this is the stage we're at is where there's tremendous, I think, uncertainty about whether the things being tried will actually work as intended. You know, are there other programs that might have unintended consequences? So this is the real world problem we're struggling with is how do we do the most good, do the least harm? with very limited information. It's very interesting. And there's always a tension between taking action and having the science to support the action that you'd like to see taken. And uh, sometimes if the problem is not too compelling and the public's not pushing to have something done, then the science marches on and you can be slow and deliberate in going out and taking action, even though some groups that are afflicted by the problem may not be happy about that. That's usually the way it goes. But when you have a problem that springs into the public limelight, like obesity really has, I mean, it's been around for a long time, high prevalence for a long time, but it's been pretty recently that people have really paid attention to this. Then that puts more pressure to do something about it and that might lead you to go be ahead of the science and go out and do things that the science may not support, which on one hand sounds pretty bad, but on the other hand, you sometimes don't find out what works until you do them because they simply haven't been tested and there aren't ways to really know how they're going to work until you get out there into the real environment. Yeah, so that's um, if, if that's going to be done, if, you're, if we're going to move ahead with things that haven't been tested, then I would be very careful to pick things that can't go too far wrong. Well, like, can't, what would be examples of that in your mind? Um, so, for example, taking, uh, you know, uh, full-calorie carbonated beverages out of the schools. That was a great idea. I don't, I don't know that it's going to reduce children's weight or prevent obesity, but I can't see much harm from it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's certain, you know, carbonated beverage manufacturers going to make less money, but and from a public health perspective, I can't see much that could go wrong. Anything. What about restricting food advertising directed at children? Um... Yeah, again, I, I, you know, I can't think of too many things that could go wrong with that. Now, well, then what, it, what am I concerned about? Well, for example, I'm still, I, still, I remain concerned about BMI report cards. So this is a policy that Arkansas implemented where every kid is weighed and sent home with a report card that tells the parents how much the kid weighs. Um, I've been told by primary care physicians that they don't know how to interpret this information. They don't know what advice to give to a child. Um, I've been told by some of the people implementing it in Arkansas that um, some of the kids were being put on fad diets by their parents, like Atkins. So they're being told not to eat carrots or vegetables because they have sugar in them. So that's, that's a case where there might be unintended consequences and there are real risks. So I would be very risk averse in moving ahead with policies before they're... And I guess, you know, um, with current events, I feel even more strongly about this because I feel like, you know, recently there's been... We've had a government that's, that's explicitly done things that are faith-based. And the Iraq war was based on a faith that things would work out a certain way without any evidence. And so at, just as opposed as I am to that, I'm opposed to other faith-based policies that, that really just have the sentiment, well, we mean well. 
you know, we're well-intentioned, so let's just move ahead with this, and, you know, if it doesn't work, we'll clean it up later. So this is where I get very nervous about people wanting to act without evidence of what works. It gets back to the concept of cost-benefit, doesn't it? Because if you have risk, then you need pretty high benefit to justify the risk. But if something doesn't carry much risk, like let's say getting the soft drinks out of schools, then you can accept unknown benefit or perhaps even small benefit. Mm -hmm. I think there's also another term that's uh, a maximin strategy where you want to maximize the minimum outcome. In other words, I want to pick the I want to make sure that the worst-case scenario isn't very bad at all. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. John, one thing I really love about the work you're doing, well, I, I like a lot of things about it, but the, oh, fact, the, <laughs> the fact that you're bringing the economic thinking into the obesity area I think is so important, and there's so much that needs to be done there. Um, my, if I scan the area, it seems like you can count the economists working on this topic on one hand, and even among them, some of them are going to only doing it part-time. What are some of the compelling economic questions that you think really need to be addressed? And wh what role do you think economists can ultimately play in helping solve this obesity issue? Well, um, I think I, I've been really gratified to see that um, there are many, many more economists today working on these issues than there were even 10 years ago. And... Uh, some really good ones. And so that's great to have colleagues in your own discipline. Uh, I mean, obesity is inherently a multidisciplinary problem. And so it is fantastic to interact with a psychologist like you and an epidemiologist like Simone French and, you know, political scientists and sociologists. Uh, but it's also really great to have other people in your discipline to help you, you know, think through, you know, similar, from a more similar point of view, what's going on. I think Economics has something to bring to the table because, not because it's the most important discipline for studying these issues, but just because it's one that hasn't been used as much in the past. And so it's, it's relatively untapped, unexploited. And economics is a social science. It's a study of how people behave. And so it has its own unique perspective of how people make decisions about diet and physical activity. And so that, I think, leads to very different predictions about, for example, what caused the rise in obesity. So um, given our perspective about people making decisions based on trade-offs, the rapid rise in obesity to us suggests that something about the trade-offs changed. Prices fell, incomes rose, being sedentary became more enjoyable because there's more cable channels and there's flat screen plasma TVs and so on. And I think another useful thing economics brings to the table is a very explicit way of organizing thinking about when and why and how the government should intervene in markets. And basically, the economic perspective is that the government should only intervene if there's a market failure. And market failure meaning that people aren't acting rationally. And that's tough to define. Again, like clearly the uh, devil's in the details there. But whether there's externalities like there clearly are with respect to health care costs and obesity, whether there's imperfect information like there is in many, like the markets for anti-obesity drugs, um, whether there's deceptive advertising going on like there is in the over-the-counter weight loss market, uh, and if there's... Um, well, really any other market failure. And then finally, I think economists have something to contribute because they use different methods. And so for a lot of these interesting questions we have, you can't run a randomized clinical trial. Like if we want to know how um, obesity ends up affecting your earnings, we can't take a whole group of people and randomize them into treatment and control groups and force the treatment group to, to gain weight in order to determine what the impact on the earnings are. Right. So economists have a whole series of models to exploit natural experiments. Um, 
And so those really, I think, are the three contributions, a different way of thinking about human behavior, uh, thinking about government intervention, and then the methods. Let's get back to this issue of market failure and externalities. How do, how do the decisions get made about whether something crosses that threshold where there is a market failure or something becomes an externality? Well, so, uh, so in, in, the, in this case of uh, obesity, uh, Eric Finkelstein, for example, at Research Triangle Institute has done some fantastic work uh, looking at whether Medicare and Medicaid, which are taxpayer-financed health care programs, whether they uh, are paying for obesity-related illnesses. And he finds that there are you know, billions of dollars of health care costs treating obesity-related illnesses being paid for by those two programs. Uh, and so that, that indicates that there really are external costs. In other words, you could imagine somebody saying, well, why is this any of our business? If somebody wants to sit in their house and watch a lot of TV and eat a lot and become obese, why is that my business? Why am I being paternalistic? And I think it's always good to start with that question in mind. And in this case, the answer is because it affects other people. It ends up affecting the taxpayer uh, through, through, these health, through these health insurance programs. Um, and so basically, those kinds of calculations, those kinds of econometric studies are how you determine whether there are external costs. Okay. And so what that argues for is some sort of intervention, that if the market left unfettered is, is doing this sort of thing or, in, or being um, uh, driven in funny ways like by the farm bill, for example, you'd want to get in and do something about it if there are these external costs. Going yeah. On. So I think most immediately we'd think like that people, when they decide, so imagine somebody, like I said, who said like, you know, I like to watch TV. I like to eat a lot. I think I'm just going to, I'm happy being obese. Um, the logic would be that that person is not faced with the full consequences of their actions um, because the taxpayers are picking up the bill for part of their decisions. So that person should have to face the full consequences of their actions. And if they still decide to be obese, that's fine. That's their decision. Um, but right now, that's not what's happening. And so, so a philosophical question then is whether you put a lot of pressure on that person, say financially, to change their behavior by, say, charging them more for health insurance or, you know, docking their pay if you're an employer. You know, not that I would ever support that, but that some people have. Um, versus trying to change the condition that are leading to the obesity in the first place. How do you think through that, an individually targeted approach versus looking at the broad economic drivers of obesity and the broad social drivers and things? So I think you're absolutely right that there's a variety of ways that one could confront a person with the full consequences of their actions or that you could um, internalize those external costs. And so, you know, sort of a um, simplistic way would be to um, you know, tax people based on their weight. That's not what I'm supporting because I think that that's politically un, a non-starter. Uh, but that's the sort of logic that comes out of this process of, okay, we want to internalize the externality. Okay, given that we can't do that or choose not to do that, what are our alternatives? Well, we could uh, raise taxes on high-fat foods, as you suggested, if we think that that's going to reduce obesity. We could subsidize physical activity, which we can and do do. Every public park, every public pool, every PE class in a recess in a public school is... A, sub, a taxpayer subsidy to make people more active. Um, so this really gets now into the literature on what works and what works best. Right, and in some ways it comes down to where the failure is occurring. So if the failure is perceived as occurring inside the individual, that the person's slovenly, lazy, or just makes bad choices, then of course you'd want an individually targeted program. But if you figure that the reason the person is making those choices are drivers that are occurring out there in society, like heavy-duty food marketing of high-calorie foods, let's say, um, jobs that keep people sedentary, 
um, price structures of food that make healthy food cost more than unhealthy food, all that sort of thing. Then you want to work at that level and target changing those things rather than to focus something specifically onto the individual. How do economists think about that kind of a distinction? Yeah, great question. So the way is to, is to sort of be very precise about, well, what do we think the market failures are? Well, like I said, there's definitely externalities. Um, there's a problem of deceptive advertising of weight loss products. Um, so the, the obvious fix there is that the government needs to stop that from happening. Uh, there's a problem of imperfect information. You know, when, when you and I went to lunch at a restaurant this afternoon, we didn't know what the calorie content of our meal was. Uh, and that's a market failure in a way because we didn't, we're not necessarily making optimal decisions without full information. So a sort of, you know, menu having nutritional or caloric information on the menu would have helped. So that's a sort of obvious response. Now, where things get really tricky is this area of uh, there's a market failure if people aren't rational because that can be abused and we can have paternalistic government from that. So, for example, uh, prohibition um, was paternalistic and people just said, you know, look, I don't think people can ever be rational when they're drinking. So we just need to remove it as a choice. And the thinking on that changed and I think 1933, but, um, but that's the danger with, with using people are irrational. But where I do feel more comfortable saying people are irrational is when we're talking about little children. Little children clearly can't take into account the future consequences of their actions. Moreover, when the kids are in schools, the government's already in charge of their diet and physical activity environment. So I think that's why we see so much support for preventive measures targeted at school children is it's just the most acceptable group, the most acceptable situation and environment. I agree with that. Well, John, thank you so much. This is, the work is just fascinating. I'm delighted that we have some economic attention being paid to this issue, and I'm sure that some good solutions are going to come as a result of that. So thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, I'd like to thank John Cowley, Associate Professor at Cornell University and uh, one of the few economists working full-time on obesity and nutrition issues and just doing some tremendous work. Um, you may learn a lot about the Rudd Center and have a, a access to a wealth of information by going to our website at www.yaleruddcenter.org, and there will be a list of uh, other webcasts beyond this one, a free email newsletter, and a number of other resources. So thank you for joining us, and so we look forward to next time.